This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That must be me. I hope so. This is episode number 35 for, shall we say, June. Our topic for this episode is the 1958 Ingmar Bergman film, The Magician. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion. If you have not yet seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, this would be a great time to turn off, I hate to say that, this podcast and go listen to one of the other excellent podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Ken, what can we say in the way of a brief introduction to the film The Magician? Well, The Magician is... In many ways, a a typical Ingmar Bergman film. We looked at the Criterion Collection disc, and a lot of the supporting documentation there suggested that in the body of work by Ingmar Bergman, it's considered to be, by many critics, although not the Criterion supporters, uh, one of his lesser films. So part of the essays by Peter Cowey and Jeff Andrews and Oliver Sayas are attempts to defend the film or rehabilitate the film's reputation. It is about a magician played by Max von Sydow, and he and his troupe of magicians or performers uh, are called to perform in front of a hostile audience that basically wants to debunk what they're doing to prove that he's a charlatan. They, on the road to the performance, they pick up a street performer who has been, I don't know, abandoned uh, or sick on the yeah. side of the road, a stranger on the, the side of the road. They They get there, and it's clear that the critics one of whom is, I believe, a doctor, and the other one who's sort of an upper-class person or forcing them to perform at will in the hopes that they can reveal him to be a charlatan, which they more or less do, at least initially. Uh, This creates a kind of anger in Mr. Vogler, the magician played by Max von Sydow, and he takes some revenge on his critics by at least momentarily getting them to believe that uh, perhaps there really is something supernatural in there, uh, but not that sort of win is a little bit of a Pyrrhic uh, victory. Uh, and then at the end, it, the magician and his troupe are, are called away to perform in front of the okay. royal you know, yes. the, the the royals and there's some jaunty music and they ride off into the sunset. It was, and and I, I will say just right up front here for me this was my very first time watching all the way through an entire Bergman film. 
Gasp. Gasp. Let's all, let's all I'll stop there to, to, to take that in or to take, take that, that in. in and, and maybe, you know, you, you want to question my um, authority now on every single thing. Um, but I found the ending to be very strange because up until that point, things have been pretty somber, kind of serious. And then that ending, it's this, this bombastic marching band music that comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, our troop is whisked off to go perform in front of the royalty and everything's happy and good. Um, it really seemed odd. Well, I think as I had thought about the ending, one of the things we had talked about in pre-show notes is that given it, uh, given that it's a Bergman film, we always want to think that it's symbolizing these greater, that it's about religion or that it's about faith. And so the, loss in this contest between authentic authenticity and illusion seems to be very disturbing and the then the ending would be at odds with that the more i thought about it and the more i read up some of the responses to it i think it's about as much about performance and mm-hmm. performing and acting and filmmaking and being in artist and so that gives me a little bit of a a threshold to sort of say okay there are always going to be critics of one's art but there's always going to be an endless audience of new people that want to do it and i think you know maybe part of the end is bergman's way of saying okay you don't like my film or you don't like my performance or my art there will always be people that do, you know, they're a little bit of vindication of, of the artist, although. Well, and the other thought I was having is, I mean, it, it doesn't take too long getting into the film. I, I had the feeling that in many ways this was a very classic kind of genre picture of the, the gothic genre picture where you have the folks on the one side who are believing in the supernatural. You've got the scientific minds on the other side who are going to prove you wrong. And there's always a rational explanation for whatever seems to be supernatural um, until something happens at the end that kind of overturns those a little bit. And in in most gothic pictures, it's some unexplained thing. Um, I think here, I think what an interesting thing Bergman does, and I think it is definitely tied to that critic film, you know, critic director sort of thing that you're alluding to already is there's other people who will believe. And, and I think that, that brings an interesting kind of twist on what is in many ways, a very typical Gothic sort of story. Well, it's also different than a typical sort of Gothic story in that while there's other people who will believe the people who are performing the illusion don't necessarily believe. I mean, this isn't like a, a drier film or whatever where some people believe in right that and other people don't in, in many ways um Herr Vogler is or believes himself to be in an illusionist now there's some question as to whether or not he believed once you mm-hmm. know or had some but there's the, this sort of layer of irony in that he believes in the abstract that maybe there is magic, there is supernatural, there is power, but in the immediate context, 
he thinks himself a fraud because he, if there is power, he hasn't he hasn't had it in a long time, and in many ways, that to me is is quintessentially Bergman in in that sense of why I always immediately wanted to go in that faith realm mm-hmm. because there's that that relationship with faith, but it's always placed in the past, and a lot of the characters, a lot of Bergman characters, seem to me to be true believers, but also true doubters in the sense of it's been a long time since they've felt it or experienced it in a very real level and have begun to doubt not just God or their faith or whatever is symbolizing that in their film, but their past experience. Maybe I was fooling myself in the past. Maybe I was uh, a victim of illusion. Maybe maybe it wasn't real. Um, Maybe what is real is what I'm experiencing now and not what I experienced then. And I think another way that we see that idea that the, the power, the faith, the, the supernatural things are maybe once what were is in the character of the granny, um, this, this old woman who's with the troop. And, and she's a complicated character herself, but she's also the one person in the film where we see the supernatural things actually happening. Um, she makes, you know, she sees into the future, makes a prediction and these things come true. And yet it's the granny. It's this old woman from the past Mm -hmm. where that power is manifest. Um, And it's, I think, you know, kind of heightens that idea that, okay, these things might have been true once. I don't know about them now. Right. And you get that generational conflict of the sort of authenticity or lack of doubt is stem from we haven't changed to the new way of doing things. Yes. And so the, the changing from the old ways to the new ways initially seems very promising because we've got new technology and new tools and new instruments. Magnets. <laughs> and yet somehow or another we've lost something central to what it is that we're right. doing that, that we don't even feel that loss until later on and aren't sure how to once we've once we've gone down that road of bringing in the new ideas or the new technology or you know reforming our practice how do we recapture not just the trappings of the old way of doing things but the authenticity and is the authenticity something more than just the trappings or is it really just are those things central to to what it is that we're doing i also thought the wife was interesting in that whole believe Mm -hmm. non-believe because she's clearly in on everything right and yet she seems to be holding out faith a little bit longer than even vogler himself you know vogler seems to me to be uh, beaten or worn down in in a kind of way in which he's doubting not just his current self but his past self but the wife seems to be a little bit more comfortable about no this was was real even if it's not well, real yeah and, and again I think she's the witness of you know even though she's a witness and her faith is in him you know she she is still an external person from him right and so 
yeah, her faith is in him, and she has seen him do these things. And and because she's in on all of the trappings, mm-hmm. she knows which parts are mechanical and which parts are real. Right. And yeah, I think it's easier for her, in a sense, to keep that faith because she's not having the internal doubts that he is. He's the one who's doing it all. And if he feels that the power is gone, there's nowhere for him, you know, it's all internal for him. And I think, yeah, she, she does. You know, just, I know you can do this. You did it before. You can do it again. You're a great man. You know, that sort of thing, even though, yeah, she is very much a part of the flimframery that's going to perpetuate things when it's not authentic. Right. You, you had mentioned that they had picked up the, the stranger along the way. He, he becomes part of the, the game, the show. But he has this interesting conversation with Vogler. And you know, he's making up all of these excuses for why he is the way he is, um, a little bit of his history. At one point, he is recounting his, a conversation that he had with God where he said to God, use me, make me your servant, but God never understood. Then there's a pause, and he follows it immediately up. Well, that's a lie, too. Um, and then he says, one goes step by step into darkness. That is the only truth. And I'm just curious what you might think how, in, in this idea, this idea of authenticity and performance, or that kind of a binary. I, you know, I think it's an interesting idea here of you know this idea that Vogler never... You know, Vogler didn't just one day wake up and say, oh, we're going to make this all fake. You know, that that's step by step. We do these little things. We progress very slowly towards a place where all of a sudden now we're in the darkness. I, you know, it's an, it, I thought it was an interesting statement about how we get to certain places. Yeah. One of the things that jumps out to me in that quote is, who is the we? Mm-hmm. Is the we human beings? Is it the we performers, like we performers mm-hmm. uh, do this? Is the we artists, is the we in some way people of, of faith? I had mentioned in pre-show notes that you said this was your first Bergman film. It's not mine, but I said that perhaps because of my interest in spiritual-minded films, that Bergman is the director that I feel like I have tried the hardest to embrace without much success, that somehow or another it's just this ought-to voice in the back (laughs) of my head, which I don't know where that comes from, that says, you know, if you're a Christian and you're interested in films, well, of course you ought to love Bergman. Bergman ought to be in. There are many of my friends and colleagues who really do, whom, mm-hmm. whom I respect. But I've been thinking a lot in the last couple of days about what is it about Bergman that always kind of puts me off. And I think that that quote touches on it, which is to say, uh, we go step by step into the darkness that 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 loss of faith or that diminishment of faith in whatever it is that you're doing or whatever it is that you're believing 
in real and the inability to get it back you know um that step by step into the the darkness where the darkness is fear or ignorance or disbelief or or unbelief but that loss of something seems to me in Bergman's films to be one inevitable and two insurmountable mm. and now maybe it is just in my instance where that's true but I don't want to be told an unpopular truth and so I've always sort of <laughs> kept Bergman at at arm's length to sort of say no no I don't I don't want to hear that because I'm still in a younger stage of my life where I do believe it and I don't want to just say as I get older I won't believe it or but I think that that quote is indicative of a kind of fatalism that permeates a lot of Bergman's films, which I think can be very comforting to the people who are going through Dark Night of the Soul or who are going through doubts because Bergman gives you permission to say it. Yeah. In, in a culture where oftentimes we're not allowed to doubt or admit our doubts or mm -hmm. say maybe it is all just BS, maybe it is all just illusion, maybe none of it's real, maybe I was fooling myself even back when I did believe it. But I think it, it also runs, giving yourself permission to say it, which I think is healthy or good because the alternative is, is repressing it, also runs the risk of the more that you say it and the more people that do say it, the more likely you are to just tacitly accept it as being true as opposed to potentially true or possibly true or just what I'm going through, you know, going through now. And I think the film does an interesting thing there because, you know, we, we've, we have three characters who are in some way representing different stages of this performative thing. We, you know, we've got our main magician, Mr. Vogel, who's at that moment of crisis. He's doubting whether or not he ever had any power, but yet he's still young enough he can do, he can still make some choices. Um, we have the stranger picked up on the side of the road who is drinking himself to death. Um, he's much further along the road and he's the one telling us it's right. step by step in the darkness and then you die. That definite, it, it, it's all a game and it's worthless and you've got that end. And then we have Granny who Part of her complexity is that, yes, she has true power. Yes, these things really happen. And she's also the one in the troupe that is brewing up fake love potions and selling them and doing all this stuff for money. And she knows full well. You know, and, and there's this, you know, she has an interesting sort of blend of belief in the true power of certain things, but also a willingness to take advantage of the audience. Um, to take advantage of those who will be taken advantage of. Um, and so you've got that option, I guess you could say. The person who, yes, it's real, but we do these flimflammery things to get by. You know, that's an option. You've got that other option, and you've got Vogel in the you've middle. You've also got the rationalist option of Bergeris, oh, yeah. which is the same portrayed, as, is portrayed as... I take it as an article of faith that none of it is real, right. which is that, that sort of contradictory, you know, I claim that I'm being scientific, 
but really being scientific is investigating evidence and drawing conclusions based on the evidence. But it's really just denial in the, you mm-hmm. know, the movie. It's like, I know what I know, and I know that you are a charlatan. And that there is a kind of feeling as though that will defend you against disillusionment, mm-hmm. which it might. I mean, you can't be disillusioned if you never buy into the illusion. Right. But it also comes at a price of if you know anytime your your rejection of something is automatic rather than considered you run the risk of rejecting something without actually ever considering it and the difference between saying you know Bogler is doing a trick and none of it is real are are, are two different statements mm-hmm. but um so I think that there's there's also a, a there's a fourth option there in terms of the the critics or the rationalists who are so concerned that I don't get fooled that they go through their whole lives not believing anything. And the truth of the matter is, I think we see in the one conversation between Vergaris and the wife, the notion of, well, I, I have this hatred of Vogler because I can't explain I may know that it's there, but I can't explain it. And you wonder, well, where does that that hatred come from? Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from from fear, you know, that fear of the unknown, or or fear that on on some level he's performing as well. He's right. acting deep down. He really does believe, or he really does doubt. He he doubts his rationalism the same way that Vogler doubts his beliefs. He just is less true and honest about his doubts and so um, you know creates a mask or a facade of, of his own that is uh, equally damning which you know we, we do see in in the one scene where Vergerus's wife is witnessing the performance and she calls him on it and yes she, you know he's saying well nothing moved me and and here you know this woman who knows her husband um, it's like no you Something happened there. Major flinch. Major flinch. <laughs> and and she won't let it go. Right. Um, and, and the response is to then violently push her out of the room. I mean, you can't have can't have any contradictory evidence. Right. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, just another form of inauthentic performance then. Let's talk about the Bergman quote. Okay. So, in the Criterion DVD, uh, one of the excerpts is from Bergman himself. From his biography, My Life in Film, or autobiography, one of the things I found interesting about Bergman's an interview with Bergman is that uh, he says about The Magician, I still like it. I think it's a funny picture. It was fun to make. It was a nice time. I was at ease, and I was struck by how much of his feelings of, towards the film were not about how successful it was, but the memory of you know, whether or not I was happy when I was making it, which I think the process was nice. Right. Well, and, and I think there's something to that with film criticism as well, that I think a lot of times we overestimate films that we just enjoyed watching you know, because we were with friends or we're remembering a happy time in our lives. And uh, we can be critical of films because we had a toothache or a fight with our wife or something. But anyway, Bergman is, is talking about 
the magician being in part not just about religious skepticism, but about performance, being in the mm -hmm. theater, uh, being in film, and the critics of the performer, you know, the critics of the magician being analogous to critics of his films and critics of his art. And, you know, he admits that he didn't take film criticism very well, and he sometimes modeled the critics in the film after people that he was upset about. Uh, but that also sometimes he felt that way about the audience too, not just the professional critic mm -hmm. who was a bad film, but the audiences who, you know, were always judging them. But he says, I, I wrote this quote down. He says in the theater profession, we often suffer from the delusion that we are attractive as long as we are masked. The public believes that it loves us when it sees us in light of our work and our public persona. But if we are seen without our mass, or even worse, if we are asking for money, we are instantly transformed into less than nothing. I'm immediately put in mind of a line in the film, The Magician. Um, Berger is, is having a confrontation finally with with Bogle, and he says, "Put on your disguise so I can recognize you." Yes. Um, well, and, and the and versus wife, who seems to be very much claiming that she likes Vogler and is on her side. When Vogler takes his mask off and appeals to her as a human being, there's this kind of almost shock or horror of like, yes. I've been changed. I mean, I want you to be this, this other thing. Yes, put on your mask so that I can... Because we're used to dealing with the mask. We're not used to dealing with, oh, this is a real person. And I think there's you know a lot there in terms of you know any kind of public figure. There are masks. There are There is the real person. We're used to dealing with one and not the other. Well, I think a couple things pop to me with that quote. I mean, one of them is that the magician, I mean, there's some question, IMDb says 1958, but uh, uh, I've heard others say 1957. There were many great films still ahead of Ingmar mm -hmm. Bergman, uh, but it's not as though he was this new person struggling to make it. He had no. had a certain amount of success, and I think we as human beings sometimes seem to think that success inoculates people from sensitivity to criticism. Uh, I was recently at a, at a set visit for a film and I, I talked to a number of, of actors. I, I can't say what it is because it was still under embargo, but I talked to a number of actors, some of whom had awards, Emmy awards, some of them who had been in films that had, grossed hundreds of millions of dollars who were recognized on the street who were beloved you know by uh people for what they have done what they had done and yet consistently they all seem to talk at one point or another about a kind of loneliness or a kind of isolation where and sometimes it was done humorously in, in the sense of like, like, um, oh, 
isn't it silly how you can get nine compliments and one critique and that one critique just kind of throws you for a loop or uh, to a much more broadly philosophic if you can do anything other than acting do it (laughs) because there are just you know there there's got to be better ways of making a living than you know you're always being judged you're always being being criticized and i think one of the the fascinating things about bergman in this film and maybe bergman in general is the recognition that that's not just for actors i mean that that's human beings are that way that that there's a basic mm-hmm. human insecurity uh but that 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 basic human insecurity when it gets plugged into the realm of religion uh that we as christians are are often actors in many ways because we'll we'll hear right they'll know you are christians by your love or you know you will the parts of the New Testament and Jesus' preaching, I will say, you know, the world has a right to judge whether or not my words are true based on you, you know, whether it, you know, people are very rarely in this day and age going to go and say, oh, I think there's nothing to Christianity because I've investigated that Jesus person and I think he was full of it. Uh, They're more often going to say, Oh, Christians are phonies. Christians are doing whatever. And so we are in that analogous place of Vogler of trying to perform while dealing with our own doubts or struggles or uncertainty, but also while dealing with our own emotional brokenness of, of, Someone can make a critique, and it's even a valid critique, or it's even true, or something like that. Uh, but it's interesting to me how often in uh, Bergman's language, where he's talking about his interaction with the critics, and how often in the film, the the word criticism doesn't come up as much as the word humiliation. You know, mm. as humiliated by not being able to perform, by being found out for what I am and right. who I am and what it is that I'm, you know, what it is that I'm doing. And I think this is especially painful for performers uh, or public figures. I, I like the part in, in the Bergman quote where he says, you know, we suffer from the delusion that we are attractive as long as we are masked. The public believes that it loves us when it sees us in light of our work. And, and I like that phrase, believes that it loves us. It isn't as though the public loves us and then turns on us, or it isn't as though they're being deliberately hurtful. It's that they really do have a hard time distinguishing between our public persona, our character, between Gandalf and Ian McKellen (laughs) or, or Dumbledore and... And whoever is playing him and say, Oh, I, you know, I, I love you. And being so thirsty for love, it's hard for us not to just accept or take that love, even if we know it's for our mask. Right. But then we become more and more dependent on our mask. And so there's, there's a lot of really interesting psychology there that, that I think is, um, made me appreciate the magician a bit more. 
on an emotive, emotional, mm-hmm. as an emotional portrait of what performers go through and what spiritual people go through, as opposed to just as a as a gothic puzzle. And it, it reminds me a lot. Um, Salman Rushdie, the author, uh, has a a new book out. Um, it's a biographical account of his time living under the fatwa, and it's called Joseph Anton. And you're like, well, he's not Joseph Anton. Yes. Except he is. Um, part of the story is that uh, while he was living with the British police protection, that was the code name um, that he selected for himself um, because the you know he was told the police wanted to train themselves to use this Joseph Anton name uh, so that they, when they were in town or whatever they wouldn't accidentally slip and you know they want to train themselves. You are Joseph Anton, but you know he talks about in in the book these multiple. Salmons that he had to live with. Um, there was, you know, certainly Salmon, the author. There was Salmon, the political figure who was living under a fatwa and had to be running for his life. There was Salmon, the father, um, the friend, all, all these different, and they were very distinct personalities. Um, and the difficulty that came with, you know, there was one instance where it was unclear about the safety of his son and he's going out of his mind because he's away hundred miles away. Can't do anything about his son, not just because he's hundred miles away, but then because of fear for his life, you know, did with people that were trying to kill him going after his son in order to draw him out. I mean, you have to maintain the illusion, you have to maintain the illusion that, you know, you're not there. Um, and you know, he really, you know, in the inter- I haven't read the book yet, but in the interviews, um, he's, he talks at great length about this difficulty of there's the masks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, yeah, it was great that, you know, he was getting all this international support for the one mask. Um, but yet that did nothing to feed his actual self um, because he couldn't see his son on a regular basis. He couldn't go to the grocery store um, and be a normal human being. Um, and I think, you know, again, that kind of gets, I think one of the things this film is touching on is that, that difficulty we have when we have to perform under different, different masks. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the danger of losing that core self of the, the mask becoming the real you, um, I think that's that's certainly a popular theme in literature. Um, it's in that speech at the end of The Talented Mr. Ripley, which um, I like that speech a lot. Uh, there's that famous episode of The Sopranos where uh, Tony is looking, taking his daughter to college, and he's looking at the quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne that says it's impossible for a man to show one face to himself and another to the world without losing track of which is which. There's the there's the famous Kurt Vonnegut quote that in this household we always like to to quote from Mother Night where it says, be careful what you pretend to be because in the end you become what you pretend to be. And I think that I think that's very resonant with a lot of Christians. And um, I did an interview recently with um, an actress who was playing a pastor's wife, and she had mentioned in her research that 
the word that came up over and over again when she was researching pastors' wives was loneliness, in part because there was very little place where you could take off the mask, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, there is, you know, it's understood that church is this place where Christians go to be authentic because we have to perform for the world. But when they, she starts having to perform in church, you know, because people are much happier or beloved the public persona of the pastor or the pastor's wife or the pastor's family uh, rather than the person themselves, it becomes increasingly harder, complicated of well, when can I take that mask off? And that mask becomes, you know, permanent. And there's something that seems to me to be psychologically damaging in the magician film. You know, that's very true. Of, and I think Bergman's getting at it in, in this, this kind of quote of, and, and I think the rusty uh, mm -hmm. situation gets added as well. If the necessity for mass, emotional or practical, is driven at least in part from a belief or a knowledge that that person without the mass, that core self, will be rejected, will be reviled, will, will be hated. Um, then that's an intensely painful thing because I think human beings, what they want. I mean, I think there's a, there's a genuine human drive or desire to be authentic, to be transparent, and to be loved. And if we feel like those two desires are in a conflict with each other, I can be who I am or I can be loved. But I can't be both because when I am who I am, you know, when right. I let the mask down, I'm not. Then that's incredibly lonely and that's incredibly painful. And I, I do think that the magician does a good job of of illustrating that that pain in the mm -hmm. Vogler. Yeah, one of the things the that has come through much in, in the Vogler character, especially, is the pain. Yeah. yeah, this is a character who is deeply struggling throughout the entire film. Yeah. And and even at the end, when we get the bombastic happy music, you don't get the sense that I mean, it, it's happy in the sense that our troop is not going to be thrown in jail. And humiliated, they are going to, they're going on. But you get that kind of uneasy sense that they're just going on. Well, and, and it's worth, it's worth saying that the Vogler character or persona is part of his persona is that he's mute. He yeah. doesn't speak. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of expression with the hands and, and, and anguish. Now he actually does, but I think that muteness becomes a symbol of a, a different kind of spiritual mm -hmm. or emotional muteness of all the things that we can't say, you know, because that we've built up this mask as a defense because, um, you know, we can't speak either because that flies in the face of our persona or the mask that we've put on or because, you know, the authentic us, whatever it is that we have to say, will be rejected. And so we have to either equivocate by saying what we don't believe right. or you know remain silent almost in a job job like way of i'm going to put my i'm, I'm sitting here it, as we've been talking about masks I'm, I'm also brought brings to mind the famous paul dunbar poem 
-hmm. We wear the mask from 1896, obviously much before our film. But the last stanza, we smile, but oh great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile, but let the world dream otherwise, we wear the mask. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the torture inside, and yet we, we put on a smile. Um, let the world dream otherwise. Thinking of Bergman's quote here, we we have to let the you know the mask. We have to, you know let the public see the smile. Um, and um, it, it, in a sense, that's the job. Um, that torture on the inside and the smile on the outside um, is interesting. And and it, it's it's a painful dichotomy that I think the film does do a good job of. Yeah. We, that's a beautiful poem. I, I think it's worth saying, as a Christian, this is less about the film than mm -hmm. just me preaching. <laughs> um, I, I find it interesting that Bergman says in the quote, in the theater profession, we often suffer from the delusion that we are attractive as long as we are masked. Yeah. Um, that that's a delusion. You know, yes. that's part of our broken, sinful nature in a broken world. Um, the reality as Christians that I, I've certainly felt and that I hope and pray that most Christians who might be listening have felt is that it is possible to let the mask down and that there is someone or something that is capable of loving our true, authentic core self and mm -hmm. not just the mask, but that. Even as Christians, we get wrapped up in the, the praise of the world or we become delusional because we live in a world full of uh, illusions and, and mistruths and half-truths and that we, um, you know, buy into the, the lie. And so there is a weird sort of deeper level of tragedy of wearing that mask of its, of uh, on some levels, there is a solution, right? There is mm -hmm. a, a there is there is a possibility for this thing, but because we don't, you know, because we've bought into a lie, we turn our back on, or we we don't avail ourselves of what is really true that can solve or bomb the 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 deeper emotional pain or meet the deeper emotional need. And then we end up being committed to the crutch of the mass because that's better than being uh, naked in the face of, of whatever it is that we think we couldn't handle. And I wonder if in the film we see a bit of that in, in Manda Vogler, the Vogler's wife. I, I think so. I'm, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, because she is the one that knew him in the past, knows him now, um, is willing to go with him in the future, knows all of his tricks. Mm -hmm. And is still very devoted to him, um, and, and loves him. Um, and I, I think, you know, we see that grace little bit there. Now, whether or not he is able to really accept it, you know, I think the film doesn't really show us. Right. It's, it's real. And I mean, she's not, she's not just one of those peace, peace when there is no peace. Or, right. Or let me flatter him because I've been told, you know, that. You know, perhaps if I tell the man enough times that you're a great man, that he'll believe it, even though it's not true. She, you know, on some level is, you know, I've seen you do these things. I've seen the best parts of you. Right. And maybe I haven't seen them lately. 
but that doesn't mean that they don't exist, that they're not there. And I think we see that when Vergeris, the skeptic, discovers uh, who she is and, 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 and all of that. I mean, they do have a, a conversation. He kind of confronts, why do you stay with this guy? I love him. And I think it really is a, a true love. Right. All right. So any closing comments? I To circle back to what I had said about Bergman, I don't consider myself to be a Bergman fan, but I'm, I certainly I thank you because I, I appreciate this film on a deeper level than I did after I watched it just because from talking through it. Uh, since it was your first Bergman, I'm wondering if you have any impressions or suggestions to um, or overall assessment? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'd certainly seen, I've seen scenes from other Bergman films, you know, Seventh Seal to be sure, um, if only as examples of how it influenced other directors. Um, I think one of the things that this film shows us is certainly uh, Bergman's kind of visual style, the, the lighting, the directing, the, you know, the cinematography, the, the rich black and white uh, world that he creates is is just stunning visually, um, and I'm sure some of that is helped by this Criterion uh, Blu-ray package. It's a one of their newer releases, and so it's been restored in, in a wonderful fashion. Um, so you know, from a visual standpoint, I, w- I was quite struck. Um, you know, at, at, earlier I used the phrase, you know, it, it's a kind of a generic typical genre picture. Um, and so one of the things that was interesting me through the film was, okay, here's a story, the elements of which I'm well familiar with, but he is doing something else with it. And so I, I was uh, pretty intrigued and impressed with, you know, taking a rudimentary story that has been told before and how he was able to, um, you know, really layer in some pretty, deep stuff um, while making, I mean, using his words, it was a fun picture. Um, I, my favorite Bergman film is probably smiles of a summer night just because it's a comedy. And I think that uh, takes away some of the, the real uh, melancholy that pervades a lot of, of Bergman's films. Uh, if you are Christians or faith listeners out there and you want to get into Bergman, I would also recommend through a glass darkly, uh, which I think is a little bit more overt on the faith themes. The Virgin Spring is also an, an interesting examination of uh, forgiveness mm-hmm. and or lack thereof. Uh, so uh, those are also a couple of titles that if you try The Magician and like it, I, I think one of the things that can be daunting about Bergman, uh, about Bergman is just that his you know, catalog of works is so large that where do I even start? It can feel, it can feel overwhelming. Uh, But I think the magician is certainly a good film to start with because uh, it's, it's, you had us walk you through it and, and certainly smiles from a summer night and through a glass darkly, it would be also good places to start. I wouldn't start. I would not start with Persona. Uh, sometimes people start with that because it's his most famous film, or one of his most famous films. But it's also, uh, a, it's just a little bit harder to follow. Uh, so I think if you're you're new to Bergman, I would I would work my way up to that. 
Yeah, and the magician is certainly an accessible story. Um, there's no, you know, it's a, it's not a complicated, I don't know what's happening type of story. Right. Sometimes when when people are getting into new authors or new experiences, if they're a little bit, uh, you know, intimidated by that experience or by subtitles or something like that, I'll try to steer them towards. Uh, things that have something that you can latch on to mm-hmm. that is familiar. There is a narrative structure here. There is a story here. Um, there's other things as well, but it's not just, you know, making a straight jump from traditional Hollywood narrative cinema to experimental right. <laughs> film of like what's going on. All right. Well, thank you, Ken. And thank you, audience, for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment, or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter, at Ken Moorfield, or at his blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!